0: The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capitol Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capitol Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, are from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I direct your attention, if you would, grab your Bible to John chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. John says when the evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about 3 or 4 miles they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened but he said to them it is I do not be afraid, then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. One of the experiences of the Christian of the believer, not just not just the unbeliever, but one of the experiences of the believer is that you go through difficulties in life, And you've probably experienced this in the midst of those difficulties. You begin asking the question, where's God? Why am I here? Why am I going through this? How is God working this for good as He promises? I think about my mom and my grandparents. I know I've told the story about how my father was killed in a plane crash, but I think about them and the aftermath of that incident. My mom was just 26 years old and faced the reality of my dad being in this plane crash over the Atlantic Ocean. Massive search and rescue operation. They never find his body. So trying to find closure in the midst of that, and they the only thing they found, they found his flight suit and his helmet, but they never found him. And just the, the storm that that wrought in my grandparents' lives, Charles and Phil's Castleberry, and in, in the life of my mother, and obviously my dad's brothers and sisters, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's Psalm 6, what Kenny read earlier, that, that you're sitting there and, and you're weeping and you're grieving, and, and you're asking that question why, God? My brother in law and sister in law, about five years ago, went down on a Sunday morning and they found their almost two-year-old daughter dead in her crib, no longer responsive, strong believers, serves essentially on the elder board at, at their church, born again. Why God? How are we to walk through this difficulty? One of the things that I think is so instructive about this section in John chapter 6 is it gives us great insight into the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ and how our Lord Jesus guides us and walks with us in the midst of difficulties. John Calvin said this great quote. He said, the Lord often makes his people fall into alarming dangers that they may more plainly and familiarly recognize Him in their deliverance. Isn't that interesting? The Lord makes His people fall into alarming dangers so that they may recognize Him when they're delivered. One of the things that Jesus wants to teach us, and I want you to turn over to John chapter 1. I had you turn there last week. I want you to turn there again. Turn to the left to John chapter 1. Remember this principle that, that John gives us in verse 16. John 1, 16. This is the principle of the Christian life. For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The only place that you will find grace, which is God's unmerited favor, is from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else you can go. And why is that the case? Why is Christ the only place that you can find grace in your life? Well, John answers that in in verse 18. Look just a couple verses down. He says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. Who's that? The Lord Jesus He has made Him known. He's disclosed God. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. No one has ever seen God. He's a spirit, but Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, He has made Him known. So, the reason why Jesus is the only place that you can find grace is because He is the Son of God. Grace comes from God, and Christ is the mediator between God and man the place that we go to find grace and it and it's in these stories these signs that Jesus's work that Jesus works that the veil is really uh, torn back and you see the power and the majesty and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ now remember the context Jesus in in the verses previous had fed a vast multitude. You Remember, they're on the, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee, and a crowd had followed him. They're, they're away from many towns and villages, and there's this difficulty about where they're going to find food to feed uh, a group of about 20,000 people. And Jesus had multiplied the dinner of a boy, five loaves and two fish, and fed everyone with 12 baskets of food left over. And what John tells us is that Jesus, this is verse 15, if you turn back to John 6, and look at verse 15, in the aftermath of this, he says, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take Him by force, to make him keen, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So all the people are on a plane. Jesus goes back up on this hill. And the only way to then disperse the crowd was to send the disciples back down to the sea, into the boat, and to go back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. That was the only way that the crowd would leave was to send the disciples away. So let's pick it up in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Just a geographical reference. Remember, they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They are going from east to, to west. Capernaum was on the northwest shore. This would have been a distance of about five to six miles that they are going by boat. John, who was there, remember John who's writing this, was there in that boat at that moment, says four things about their situation in the next few verses. Two of them are found in the second part of verse 17. He says, it was now dark. That's one. It was nighttime. It was probably after 7 or 8 p.m. that they began rowing and were told in another gospel that they would row until 3 to 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night. So it was dark. It was the middle of the night. And then secondly, we're told that they were separated from Jesus. Jesus had not yet come to them. Now remember, John is writing this many, many, many years after the fact, and he's, he's recounting, he's anticipating that Jesus is going to come to them walking on water, and he's explicitly saying they are alone and away from Jesus. So that's their second second aspect of their situation. They're separated from Jesus. Third, verse 18, he says, the sea became rough. That's the, that's the third element. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Almost as soon as they got into the boat and started rowing across the the sea. This is if you if you think if you has anybody ever used a rowboat before? Do you face the direction that you're going or do you face backwards? You face backwards, right? So they get they get in the boat and they're all holding those those oars facing east, because they're going west. And as soon as they start going, what happens is a wind from the north comes down. Into the Sea of Galilee, and th- this this there's uh, topographical reasons for this. The the Sea of Galilee is about six hundred feet below sea level, very low, uh, not as low as the Dead Sea, but still. Uh, it's, it's very low in elevation, and there's hills all around it, and then there's mountains to the north. And so what happens, those winds come up and over those mountains and shoot right down into the Sea of Galilee. And, it, and just like that, it can turn into a whirlpool. And so that's what happens. They get into the boat, they start rowing, and then they find themselves in the middle of uh, a very windy night. Uh, people have said that at times 10-foot swells can be seen on the, the Sea of Galilee. Now, we call it a sea. It's a lake. And that's, that's something for a lake. And then the fourth aspect of their situation. They rode, verse 19, about three or four miles into the lake. The Greek text actually says that the distance is between 25 and 30 stadia. And our English translators are nice enough to translate it directly into uh, American miles for us. A stadia would be about an eighth of a mile. So 25 to 30, you know, you, you do the math. You're between essentially three and four miles. And what, what John is painting the picture of is that they're in the middle of the lake. They're they're a little bit probably past the midway point, but they're still in the middle of the lake. The winds are blowing. The waves are high. It's dark, and they're there without the Lord Jesus. And it feels like there's nowhere to go. You can imagine the conversation that's taking place among the disciples. What would you be saying if you were in this situation? You know, didn't we tell Jesus to send all the people away to get food earlier? And if only He had done that, we could have, we could have departed much sooner, and we wouldn't be in this situation? Or why didn't Jesus just come with us? Why didn't we just insist, Jesus, we're not leaving unless you come? Why are we in this situation? And, of course, this is the situation that we find ourselves in, isn't it? Why am I here? And where is the Lord Jesus Christ in this moment? Where is he? Here's the first thing I want you to see. Christ above the storm. Christ above the storm. God allows His children to sometimes walk through moments in life in which His presence seems to us as veiled. It's like God's not even there. It's not that God has withdrawn His presence, but it feels like it to us. It's like God has hidden his face from us. And when you read the Psalms, you see this over and over and over again. Let me give you a few references. David says in Psalm 13, 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Job says, Job 30, 26, he says, when I waited for light, there came darkness. When I waited for light, there came darkness. And then the psalmist, Psalm 44, 24, he says, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground." Have you ever had a day where it seems like your belly just clings to the ground? Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? But where's Jesus? Where is he? Well, Matthew tells us. I'm not going to have you turn there, but I'm going to to read you what Matthew says about where Jesus is. This is Matthew 24, 23. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself, to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now let me ask you a question. When Jesus was praying on that mountain, who do you think he was praying for? Who do you think he was praying for on that hill? His disciples. He was praying, I have no doubt, in interceding for these men. You see, from the vantage point of the disciples, all they see is the predicament of their situation the wind, the waves, the seeming absence of Christ, the nowhere-to-go, middle-of-the-lake situation. But if you take a step back and you see the whole picture, you see something different. One of these days, I want to commission a painting. And in this painting, you would paint in the background the Sea of Galilee, starry, moonlit night, the high waves, the winds, and you would see that boat in the background tossed on the sea, waves crashing against its hole. But in the foreground, Jesus is there kneeling. He's praying, and he's praying and interceding for his disciples. When Jesus Christ ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the Father to what is called Christ's session. You know what Christ is doing right now in his session? He's praying. Right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you if you're a believer. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that remarkable? That the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, prays for his people and lifts them up to God. Robert Murray McShane said this, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. He's praying for you. Think about that the next time that you're walking in the middle of the storm. What is Christ doing in this moment for you? He's praying for you. Isn't that remarkable? By name, he's praying for you, interceding for you. If you heard his voice, what would you do? but you know He is. So, what do we have to fear? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Still, it's hard walking through those moments. So, what do you do when the storms don't seem to lift? What do you do when it seems like God is veiling his face from you? Let me just give you a few points of application. One, you have to keep pressing on. You have to keep pressing on. The disciples didn't go internal in the boats. That's a phrase we use in the Marine Corps. You know when bad things start to happen? Sometimes people just go internal, you know, just curl up in a ball and just wish that you weren't there. You can't do that. The disciples don't do that. What do they do? They keep, they keep going. They keep rowing. Winston Churchill used to say, keep buggering on. you, you got to keep moving forward. I'm sure, secondly, they were crying out to God. You don't stop praying and calling out to God in the midst of your difficulty. If you're in Christ, you know that your prayers are heard even though it doesn't seem like God is answering that prayer. So the psalmist, I read Psalm 44, 24, and 25 earlier. This is what he says in the next verse, the very next verse, the last verse of the Psalm 44. He says, rise up, come to our help, Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. He keeps crying out to God, saying, God, come, come to my deliverance. And you know what? God hears. I was reminded of this reading uh, Exodus 3. This is what God says to Moses. He says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know they're suffering. So, God hears. We just keep calling out to Him. Third, preach Scripture to yourself. Preach Scripture to yourself. you got to have some text that you go to when you're in dark moments. you got to have these go-to texts. Let me just give you a couple that I like to use. One is Psalm 11. Psalm 11. I'll just read it briefly to you. David says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say, this is talking about an enemy, how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in in the dark at the upright in heart. He says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? In other words, what can we do when things have melted down? What can you do when in a country that's turned its back on God? What can you do? And he reminds himself, he preaches to himself. He says, I remember that the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. In other words, the Lord is ruling And then he says, the Lord sees, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. And then David reminds himself this this truth. In the darkness, he says, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. In other words, what you're walking through is a test. The Lord's allowing you to go through the test. And then David says, let him rain coals On the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. And then he reminds himself again, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The upright, the godly, will see the face of God again. That presence of God. That's what the face represents, is the intimate presence of God If I've ever visited you in the hospital, uh, you've probably heard this next verse. This verse was given to me by Jim Young. I think, Jim, I think you preached this verse to yourself. Psalm 119, 165, great peace have those who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. Great peace have those who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. And then one of David's personal favorites, Psalm sixteen eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. It's, it's reminding yourself who you are and where you stand with God. And it's preaching that truth to yourself again and again and again and again and again. And again. God is with me. I have set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I find my refuge in the Lord. I will see his face again. You remind yourself of these truths. So that's three, four. You seek encouragement from a godly friend. Sometimes what you need in those moments of darkness is just a good godly friend to come and sit with you, be with you, Remind you of truth and to pray with you. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 7 6, he says, but God, who comforts the downcasts, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God comforts people through other believers. Man, that is so it, that there's nothing like calling up a friend and having and just explaining your difficulty. And having that person speak truth into your life and praying for you. Sometimes that alone just causes the clouds to go away. And then fifth and finally, you wait for the Lord. You wait on the Lord. Isaiah says, Isaiah 30, 18, blessed are all they that wait for him. You wait for the Lord. And the Lord will come. But it's often in his timing not ours. This is what Pink says. Listen to this. This is such a profound quote. But let us remind ourselves that God is in no hurry. He waits His own good time. Omnipotence can afford to wait, for it is always sure of success. Did you hear that? Omnipotence can afford to wait because it is always sure of success, and because omnipotence is combined with infinite wisdom and love, we may be certain that God not only does everything the right way, but also at the best time. Isn't that reassuring? That God does everything at the best time. So, Christ is above the storm, and guess what else? Christ is in the storm. Christ comes and meets us in the storm. And he often waits until when the moment seems darkest, when it appears that things could not get any worse, when all hope is about to be lost, Christ comes to the aid of his disciples. Alfred Edersheim describes this moment like this. He says, then, remember Jesus has been praying. He rises from his knees knowing that, alas, it could not, it would not be so to the many. He looks out over the lake after that little company which embodied and represented all there yet was of his church, all that would really feed on the bread from heaven and over and own him their true king. Without presumption, we may venture to say that there must have been indescribable sorrow and longing in his heart as his gaze was bent across the track which the little boat would follow. As we view it, it seems all symbolical, the night, the moonlight, the little boat, the contrary wind, and then also the lonely Savior after prayer looking across to where the boatmen vainly labored to gain the other shore." As in the clear moonlight, just the piece of water stands out, almost like burnished silver, with all else in shadows around. The cellless mass is now rocking to and fro without moving forward. They are in difficulty, in danger, and the Savior cannot pursue his journey on foot by land. He must come to their help, though it be across the water. So Jesus Comes personally into the stormy sea to rescue them. That's why he comes. You ever ask that question? Why does Jesus come walking on the water? It's a rescue mission. Look at verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. It's fascinating. That word walking, it's just the normal word for walking. It's like he's describing a stroll in the park. And and I think, you know, when we picture Jesus walking on water, we, we picture a flat surface, you know, just a tranquil sea. Jesus is walking, strolling on the waves, on these turbulent waters. And John says they were frightened. This is one of the ways that we know that this miracle really happened. I think this is remarkable. The disciples had seen so many miracles, miracle after miracle, healing after healing. They'd seen him turn the water into wine, they'd see him multiply the loaves, heal lame men, sick people miles away. But what they didn't expect was Jesus to come walking to them. On the water. That word saw, when it says they saw Jesus, it's Theoreo, where you hear our English word theater. It's the picture of gazing, of staring down at something. That's what they're doing. They they see something on the the waves. and, And and they're like, what's that? And they start looking and they're and they're staring at it. And this phrase. This word is often used when people saw Jesus' miracles. John says in John 2.23, many believed in his name when they saw theoreo, the, the signs that he was doing. In John 6.2, a large crowd followed him when they saw same word, the Oreo, the signs Jesus was doing on the sick. It's it's a, a vision of transfiction that people are 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 stunned and they're, and they're and they're staring at what Jesus is doing. So what do the disciples make of this? Why are they afraid? The other gospels tell us they're afraid because they think it's a ghost. They, they don't even think it could be Jesus. They think It's a departed soul, maybe from a shipwreck, that is coming to them on the water. Matthew 14, 26 says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. They had no thought of there being the possibility that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Circle that phrase, it is I. That is a very important statement. It is one of the great I am statements in John's gospel. It's the Greek phrase ego a me, and it simply means I am. Where have you heard that before? I am. Exodus chapter 3. Remember Moses asked, what does your name mean and what does God say? He says, I am that I am. I am pure being. I am the essence of what it means to be existent. I am transcendent. When Jesus uses this exact phrase, ego a me, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember the temple guard and Judas come to arrest Jesus and, and some uh, Roman soldiers with him and Pharisees and all these people are in the Garden of Gethsemane? They are looking for Jesus, and Jesus says to them, I am, ego, a me. And when he says that, John says that they all fell to the ground under a demonstration of divine power, and they were pinned to the ground like in a wrestling match. They couldn't get up. And that's why Jesus was able to tell them, you can take me, but you can't take these other disciples. You ever wonder why the disciples got away? That's why, because they realized Jesus was in charge. He pinned them all to the ground. And he pinned them to the ground with this divine statement, Ego me. But here he's saying it, It's a divine statement of peace. He's saying, remember who I am. I'm not just a man. I am God. I'm the Son of God. Do not be afraid. Remember who Jesus is, and you won't have to be afraid. It's the pronouncement of His presence. And here's the thing. So when you're in the middle of the storm, remember, Jesus is praying for you. He's above the storm. Right now, a man in heaven is praying for you. But by his spirit, he's also with you. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Christ presence is with you I am is with you so therefore you do not need to be afraid and guess what believer nothing can separate you from the presence and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ nothing uh, just I think we have some time well we don't have time but let's let's do it anyway. Um, turn to Romans 8 just really quick i just want to read you these verses because i think they'll be helpful for you when you're facing a challenge look at verses 35 to 39 look at what paul asks and, th- and again this is for the believer he says who shall separate us from the love of christ Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, angels, talking about demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the presence of Christ and the love of Christ. Praise be to God for His mercy and grace that Christ accompanies us in the midst of the storm. And then you know what? Christ sees you through the storm. Christ through the storm. And you see this in the last verse. Just parenthetically, before this last verse happened, John doesn't record this maybe because he didn't want to embarrass Peter uh, further. But you remember Peter said, if it's you, Lord, let me walk out onto the water. Jesus says, come. And you remember Peter sinks and and Peter doubted and then Jesus lifted him up. I I don't know why John doesn't include that, but John just goes right, right to the point where Jesus comes to the boat. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Notice the disciples' response to the Lord Jesus, they take him into the boat. The believer wants the presence of Christ. The believer desires communion with Christ. The the believer desires Christ to come into their life and knock down the door into every room of their life. They don't want rooms in their heart partitioned off from Christ. Remember what Jesus says, In Revelation 3.20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The believer longs for fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the middle of the storm. And what Jesus does is he comes, and he comes and he comforts. And you no longer feel alone, and you know in his intimate, intimate presence that he is with you. Now, here's the thing. None of that is true of the unbeliever. None of these promises are true for the non-Christian. They're not assured of the presence of Christ. They're not assured that Jesus is praying for them. In fact, if they saw Jesus coming on the water, they probably wouldn't want anything to do with them, probably nothing to do with them. Yeah, Jesus is coming for the rescue, I don't want anything to do with a holy Christ. That's probably the state of the unbeliever. So, look, if that's you this morning, and you're walking through a storm, you came today for the right reason, to hear this message. Christ comforts His children but you must become one of his children. And the only way to become one of his children is through faith in him and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. Only then are you assured of these promises. Don't face the storms of life alone. Come to Christ, and Christ will walk with you through them. Now, Two miracles, two more miracles take place right here at the end of this story. Matthew tells us, Matthew 14 32, that when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So the the wind and the waves are calmed. So that's the second miracle. Remember the first? Jesus comes walking on the water. Then when he gets in the boat, the waves are calmed. Jesus commands the winds to cease. And then the third miracle is this. Look there at the end of verse 21. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Do you remember where they were? In the middle of the lake. Man, this, this verse will play with your mind. But it's essentially Jesus bends time and space. It's like interstellar, but real. It's in a moment, they're there. Right on the shore. You remember Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch? It's like all of a sudden he was somewhere else. That's what Jesus does with the entire boat and the disciples. And all of a sudden, they're at the shore. So, it's three miracles. All wrapped up into one. Three for one. So, what are we to make of this? What are we to think of this? Just let me give you briefly three theological reflections about the Lord Jesus Christ. One, this reveals that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. Let me just read you a few verses from Psalm 107, just, just a couple verses to you. Listen to this, and listen how Jesus fulfills this. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight." They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were all at their wits' end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and He brought them to their desired heaven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of men. You see, in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling a messianic psalm. He's fulfilling this prophecy that was given over a thousand years before. So, this this story teaches us that Christ is the prophesied Messiah, that Christ, secondly, is the Son of God, that Christ is the Son of God. What the Bible tells us over and over again is that only God has command of the seas. Only God commands the seas. Psalm 65, 7 says, "'You stilled the roaring of the seas, the pounding of their waves, and the tumult tumult of the nations.'" Psalm 89.9 says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And so Christ is showing us, showing his disciples, giving them definite proof that he is the son of God. The writer of Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then third reflection, and this is so important for us, is that the proper response is worship. The proper response to Christ is worship. Matthew tells us, Matthew fourteen thirty three and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, truly you are the Son of God. Truly he is the Son of God. And that should be the regular praise of our hearts to him. Because life, listen very carefully, life is one storm after the next. It really is. You remember the hobbit out of the frying pan into the fire? It's one thing after the other. You think that you've, you're in smooth sailing, and the next thing you know, you're right back in, into the hopper. And what Jesus does over and over and over and over again, all the way until you get to glory, is he delivers you and he comes to your aid and he provides the solution and and the the response is and the reason why he does this is for worship is for you to praise his name and cry out to him and glorify him and that's where he wants us to be this morning that's where he wants you to be this morning is worshipping him praising him with all of your heart singing praise to the Lord. We're supposed to end in worship. are supposed to end in worship. Heavenly Father, we do worship you, and we praise you for who you are, that you are the Son of God, that you come to the rescue of your children, that you pray for us in the midst of our difficulty, you calm the storms of life, You reveal to us that you are the Son of God, the all-powerful, mighty Christ. That you are worthy of all of our worship. So we praise you, Lord, and we honor you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at CapitalCommunityChurch.com.